Welcome back to the Padang Sessions. In this episode, art historian Dr. Pamela Corey surveys the works of diasporic Vietnamese artists that draw on themes of transnational history, such as competing nationalisms, contested historiographies, wartime trauma, and diasporic migration. There are few other countries, if any, that have commanded such forceful metaphorical weight in global collective memory than Vietnam. Its enduring invocation as a shorthand analogy for geopolitical quagmire and American ignominy has held for decades, engendering representations and consolidations of the metaphor in literature, the Hollywood film industry, and the arts. These artistic and cinematic forms have spurred theorizations about popular culture, post-modernity, and memory and memorialization, demonstrating the way that Vietnam has often structured historical, geographical, and academic thinking. What made Vietnam work as a global metaphor was the potency of its images, usually anchored in violence and abjection, circulated through new technologies of vision in the 20th century. Vietnam was the television war, and it is widely held that this was a primary factor in its disastrous consequences for American prestige and popular opinion. Looking back from a perspective anchored in the present, Vietnam unfolds distinctive layers of affective meanings and historical experiences that have accumulated for different publics throughout the 20th and 21st centuries. These include its identification as Andochine, object of colonial nostalgia, a sovereign unified nation on the horizon of communist revolutionary vision, the linchpin of Cold War containment in a high stakes geopolitical arena, a 1960s global counterculture and protest slogan, the toppling of American might and spectacle of failed military intervention, the inauguration of postmodernity through its audiovisual fracturing of master narratives, the collective figure of boat people as symbols of mass refugee crisis and diaspora, and finally, a rising dragon or tiger in what is being hailed as the Asian century. Space and distance distinguish the kinds of images conjured by Vietnam, demonstrating that the actual country, as a real place lived in real time, often has little to do with the weight of its imaginaries, imaginaries that persist for generations for whom Vietnam means something, whether as a shared historical reference or through individual memory and experience. For example, the lingering residues of what were and continue to be the emotionally saturated lenses through which Vietnam is perceived as a homeland, site of memory, and an object of loss for a vocal diasporic audience were made publicly visible in January of 2009 in Orange County, California, home to the world's largest community of overseas Vietnamese, comprising a generation of Southern Vietnamese who had fled as refugees following the fall of Saigon in April 1975, and the subsequent reunification of the country. A large group of Little Saigon residents protested the display of a photograph titled Tu Duc, which is the name of a northeastern district of Ho Chi Minh City, 
shown as part of an art exhibition organized through the Vietnamese American Arts and Letters Association. The photograph was even vandalized. They objected to the photograph's depiction of two principal communist symbols, the red flag with the yellow star, the official flag of the Socialist Republic of Vietnam since 1976, and the gilded bust portrait of Ho Chi Minh. The former serves as a design element for a tank top worn by a seated young woman gazing away, upward, and into the distance. The latter sits on the table next to her, an element of home decor next to a red journal, cell phone, and potted yellow carnations. The image smacks of ironic critique of what Li Wang Choi has referred to as authentic kitsch, serving as a snapshot of the deflated symbols of the revolutionary project whose intended ideological fervor has waned as Vietnam has embraced the structures of global capitalism. If exhibited within Vietnam, the image may raise a red flag for Ministry of Culture censors who might curtail its possibilities for display simply because of the portrait bust of Ho Chi Minh, but otherwise it depicts an innocuously pedestrian tableau that is no more controversial than the tourist shops selling propaganda poster reproductions as popular souvenirs, or the growing number of cafes styled after Viet Cong guerrilla uh, chic, peppering the central districts of major Vietnamese cities. The element of ironic reflection deployed by Brian Duan, a Vietnamese-American photographer based in Long Beach, California, is a strategy found in the works of numerous artists across global contexts commenting upon the post-socialist condition. These artists, like the 1990s generation of Chinese painters working in political pop or cynical realism, may share both an affective yet critical stance because of their generational sense of belonging to the pre and the post of socialism as a historical era, and who choose to mediate socialist symbols as signs that have become, as Martin Jay put it, all signifier and no signified. In Duan's image and in artworks from across the former Soviet bloc, such as Sandor Pinchalehi's Sickle and Hammer, brute or vulgar materiality is often deployed to diffuse the potency of abstract symbols through their transformation into banal physical objects. However, in the case of Duan's photograph in Southern California, this kind of conceptual maneuvering was irrelevant for a public for whom the two principal symbols could not be distanced from personal narratives of violence, imprisonment, dispossession, death, and trauma. For many first-generation refugees, the Vietnamese state flag will never be anything other than a bloody flag. And for these viewers, metaphoric proximity supplanted critical aesthetic distance. Such affect-laden signs subsumed all else within the image. The ordinariness of the scene, the casual everydayness of the setting, and the kitsch forms of the taboo symbols may have even further intensified the emotional response of a diasporic community for whom the journey from the homeland held such high stakes and tremendous losses. For this generation of a diasporic public in Little Saigon, California, the only legitimate portrait of Vietnam, a condition of representation that renders itself an almost sacrosanct act, is that of its pre-1975 post-colonial Southern Republic, 
emblematized by its urban capital of Saigon, not Ho Chi Minh City, as it was renamed after 1975. <clears throat> the public outcry over Duan's photograph emphasizes the construction and tenacity of a polarized view of what constitutes the true Vietnam for much of the first generation of its diaspora in the United States, committed to the image of Saigon as the capital of the lost and legitimate homeland. These sentiments of longing have been studied through manifestations in diasporic literature, film, and music, and the concept of nostalgia has been an accessible and shorthand means of framing these perspectives. These cultural productions have largely been interpreted through trauma theory, which Svetlana Boim has noted as a prevalent framework for analyzing post-war post subjectivity and social conditions. This has also informed popular curatorial prompts, not only for the exhibition of works by Vietnamese-born artists, but also within the world of post-1989 contemporary art, noted for its consumption of global crisis and cultural difference across an ever-expanding geographical purview. If one is to think Vietnam through contemporary art, it is thus no surprise that the most internationally renowned artists within the last two decades have largely been Vietnamese-American, such as Trinity Minh Ha, Jun Nguyen Hatsushiba, Din Kyu Le, Tiffany Chung, and the members of the Propeller Group, due to the imbrication of their work in discourses of migration, memory, and identity. This is, of course, an insufficient representation of the breadth and depth of practices of numerous artists that consider themselves to belong to the Vietnamese diaspora and whose works I don't have the space to do justice to here. But the aim of my talk today is to consider the multiple horizons of Vietnam in a selection of artworks that demonstrate their reach beyond the shadow of war and even beyond Vietnam, demonstrating how they do more than participate in the work of memory. For Tuan Andrew Nguyen, Tiffany Chung, and Din Kyu Le, who are considered returnee artists because of their choice to return to and resettle in Vietnam as adults, legible engagement with the transnational histories of the Vietnam War in the form of conceptual mediations and alternative modes of memorialization raised their profiles and catalyzed their careers on the international art circuit. As diasporic artists based in Vietnam since the late 1990s and early 2000s, personal and professional factors shaped their decision to return. For example, craft industries have provided valuable sources of creative inspiration, as well as means of fabrication for works serving as critical interventions into fraught transnational histories. Craft traditions have held particular appeal for diasporic artists who have returned to study traditional art forms and to further develop their own practices, as in the case of Fifi Wen. In 2004, Wen received a Fulbright scholarship to study lacquer painting in Vietnam and has since established a significant body of work predicated on experimentation with the medium, demonstrating a commitment to stretching the perceptual possibilities of lacquer beyond its boundedness as a surface treatment, pushing the medium to blur the boundaries between sculpture and installation, representation and illusionism, objecthood and environment. While Din Kyu Le, as arguably the most internationally recognized artist from Vietnam today, has received particular acclaim for, working, for work dealing with the history of the Vietnam War and the refugee experience, 
It is important to recognize that craft, labor, and informal economies have been recurring artistic preoccupations throughout his practice. While the Vietnam War and its refugee crisis have driven much of the topical content of Lay's work, various projects have revealed his attentive observation of the routines, patterns, and mechanisms of urban everyday life in Ho Chi Minh City, a mode of ethnography that shaped such early works as Damaged Gene, Lotus Land, and a series of photographs and sculptures produced for the 2009 exhibition, Signs and Signals from the Periphery. I suggest that these interests have configured numerous works that have marked milestones in the artist's career, which have been primarily hailed for their commentary on the Vietnam War and Lay's outspoken desire to reclaim the Vietnamese perspective. Such works include his ongoing series of photo weavings, including From Vietnam to Hollywood, which was featured in the 50th Venice Biennale in 2003, and The Farmers and the Helicopters, which was exhibited at MoMA in 2010, in what at the time was the artist's most prestigious solo exhibition to date. Both projects critique the Orientalist screen onto which Vietnam was long viewed and imagined by American audiences, a screen that deflected a portrait of culpability by projecting a one-sided and universal narrative of war's inhumanity in order to construct and reconciliate national memory. Lay's photo weavings carefully enmeshed photographic strips depicting iconic images from wartime photojournalism with stills from recognizable Vietnam War genre Hollywood films, hence exposing the construction of the metaphorical screen through its literal rendering. Farmers and the Helicopters, or the Farmers and the Helicopters, featured a helicopter handcrafted by Vietnamese farmers installed together with a semi-documentary film collaboratively produced with the Propeller Group Collective, demonstrating modes of agency and resourcefulness on the part of Vietnamese subjects marginalized from both national and international vision. The prominence of such themes as competing nationalisms, the historiography of war, the plight of the refugee, and diasporic memory undergird predominant inter interpretations of his work, although Lay's attention to what might be described as photocraft has gained attention due to his increasingly ambitious and varied techniques of stretching the possibilities of the photographic print's material form. While the above topics have been treated more extensively, less emphasis has been given to Lay's recurring engagement with labor and informal industry, interests that have formally shaped much of his practice over the last two decades, and played a significant role in the work cited above. <clears throat> as such, Lay's work needs to be understood not as simply mired in memory, but as attentive to both historical events and their ever-present residues, as well as the vitality, agency, and, and ingenuity of local practices in the present. His engagement with craft can be perceived as twofold at the level of the informal sector and what Iftikhar Dadi has termed urban craft, and the essential role of the haptic encounter and the handmade in Lay's photo weavings and embroidered pieces. The Damaged Gene Project, which took place in August 1998, and one of the earliest major works conceived by Lay after his resettlement in Vietnam in 1996, 
provides an important avenue for these directions, both the artist's commitment to retelling the history of the war beyond predominant narratives, and deploying local resources and forms to achieve compelling means of giving meaning, meaningful and relevant form to such socio-cultural inquiry. Damaged Jean recalled the controversial use of the chemical defoliant Agent Orange during the Vietnam War, its lasting effects on the living population, including birth defects, and the United States' refusal to acknowledge responsibility at the time. According to Lay, the lack of local public discourse on this subject could be attributed to superstition that open speech could lead to the actualization of one's fears, such as giving birth to children with deformations, as evidenced in high numbers of conjoined twins. Silence at the state level was tied to the government's prioritization of agricultural exports during a time when Vietnam was attaining a higher standing in international trade following Doi Mui, the economic reforms that took place in 1986. For one month, Lei rented a kiosk at a busy marketplace in Ho Chi Minh City and had baby clothes and toys fabricated to be sold. These included knitted sweaters and pacifiers for, um, and plastic toy figurines of conjoined twin babies. In addition, garments made to appear as cheap brand name knockoffs were embroidered with the names of chemical companies that had produced Agent Orange. At a cursory glance, the dolls and clothing assimilated with other mass-produced wares made locally or in China, therefore initially disguising their peculiarities. However, Lei recalled the risk involved with the public display and its interactive dimension, quote, Culturally, I was bringing a taboo subject and putting it right in the middle of the market for one month. It was the scariest opening I've ever held, end quote. Despite Lay's fears, there were numerous elements that mitigated the chance that his work could be, would be construed by cultural authorities as a defiant political action. Lay was at an early stage of his career and was not yet subject to the surveillance that he experiences today as a prominent figure in the artistic and cultural community of Vietnam. Furthermore, while at one level his garments and toys were immersed in a panoply of commercial goods visually indiscernible to the casual glance of shoppers, at another level the toys could be viewed alternatively as a part of the familiar visual iconography of mythical beings or bodhisattvas, such as Kwan Um or Avalokiteshvara, who are often depicted with multiple arms, further obscuring the object's abnormality until closer scrutiny. The work's guise as what Iftikhar Dadi has termed urban craft thus served to mask the public intervention. In an essay by Dadi that scrutinizes the production and circulation of children's plastic toys in urban Pakistan, he describes urban craft as embodying persistent, ever-multiplying material traces of tradition enabled by entwined structures of popular culture, capitalism, and informal economies. In a similar vein to Ravi Sundaram's analogy of media urbanism as a form of pirate modernity, Dadi cites the popular as a realm where multiplying modes of informal production and mass consumption produce alternative routes of subject formation that are a consequence of, yet articulated apart from the domain of national global capitalist modernity. 
Both Sundaram and Dadi use such terms as viral and subversive to note the strategies through which urban dwellers adopt unofficial means and structures in which to partake in the technologies and consumption of modern life. With regards to manufactured plastic toys for popular markets, which can be compared to those in Lay's damaged gene, Daddy notes that due to the informal sector's lower costs of manufacturing, expanding networks of circulation and adaptability to the market result in greater variability and quicker responsiveness to consumer tastes. Hence, when, when examined in, in closer depth, they demonstrate greater creativity and dynamism as objects that are attuned to legible forms of tradition, as well as the changing currents of popular consumption. Lay's use of the market stall to enact a form of historiographical intervention, an urgent reminder not to let difficult historical episodes remain unresolved, can be understood as a form of viral attachment, viral attachment to and infiltration of the informal sector vis-a-vis -vis the central Ho Chi Minh City marketplace, notably against the context of Vietnam's growing status as a key supply center for children's garments and toys. Renting the stall from the owner and using improvised means of fabrication, some outsourced, some devised by the artist himself, the toys displayed in the booth launched formal continuities with a subsequent series, Lotus Land, in which the morphological traces of tradition described by Dadi shape the form of the sculptures, but in the form of vernacular mythology, also inform their conception. The pronounced Buddhist references of the multi-armed figurines synthesizes physiological de deformation with popular beliefs in spirits and land purification. The artist recounted overhearing a story of stillborn conjoined twins who were then buried by a river and whose spirits, symbolizing innocence and purity, were considered to have sacralized the land, transforming it into a spiritual site for offerings and prayer. As such, the specificities of the US government's bioecological violation and its repercussions for generations to come were abstracted and rendered into a transcendental narrative that, in a sense, aimed to purify history and reconcile present-day suffering. Lay hired temple sculptures to fabricate the figures out of fiberglass at a near life-size scale, more closely evoking the multi-armed deities on lotus blossoms from Sino-Vietnamese Buddhist artistic traditions. While first using popular craft as a conceptual intervention into the everyday urban landscape with both the Damaged Gene Project and Lotus Land series, Lay affected a sequence of reversals, first circulating contemporary artworks as urban craft, seemingly mass-produced popular objects in a local urban marketplace, and then rescaling them revising their forms and developing serial versions as objects of contemporary art on the global circuit. Vietnam, in its various capacities as a metaphor, most notably for geopolitical quagmire, but currently as a model for hybrid socialist neoliberal development, has also provided a crucial subtext for the practice of Tiffany Chung. Chung was born in Da Nang and left the country as a refugee in her teens 
but returned and permanently settled in Ho Chi Minh City shortly after receiving her MFA from the University of California, Santa Barbara in 2000. Having trained in California as a conceptual artist during a time when identity politics held a peak currency and expanding purviews of global contemporary art, Chung faced the quandary of representation in the expectation that she, as a Vietnamese American female artist and former refugee, make work accounting for that historical narrative. Yet the refugee experience and the absence of her father during her childhood, due to his 14-year imprisonment in the Northern Democratic Republic of Vietnam, have formatively shaped Chung's interest in imposed political borders as vastly divisive and traumatic forces on human populations. The commitment to this inquiry and its global breadth underpins the iterations of the hand-drawn and embroidered maps that have served as dialogical counterparts to many of her multimedia projects. The astounding breadth and success of her practice is evident in the artist's roster of international and high-profile exhibitions, including the Venice Biennale and group exhibitions at major museums of modern and contemporary art. While refugee crises have become the explicit focus in Chung's recent projects, such as the Syria Project or Vietnam Exodus Project, Chung's earlier concerns focused on the urban condition and its attendant subjectivities and aesthetics. Much of this work was inspired by the particularities of the artist's lived experience in Japan and later in the context of late socialist Vietnam and it was her experience as witness to the transformations and cultural affects of the urban milieu that would shape her art making and continue to resonate in her work for more than a decade. The residential base of Ho Chi Minh City, more commonly referred to by its pre-1975 uh, pre name Saigon, would serve as a creative impetus for Chung's practice often providing points of entry into broader conceptual investigations and comparative global case studies. These have largely centered on the psychological impacts produced or revealed by urbanization, pop culture, state propaganda, environmental and industrial disasters, ecological change, warfare, and diaspora. During her residence in Japan from 2005 to 2007, Chung began to focus more specifically on the growth and transformation of cities and their impact on urban populations. A series of collages created at that time convey a hypersensory ephemerality, reflecting a confluence of inspirations ranging from Japanese floral design, textile patterning, and what Chung has referred to as early pop abstraction, connected to the compressed and frenzied nature of metropolitan life. These collages were also a first phase within Chung's developing artistic praxis, forcing her to grapple with a highly controlled palimpsestic process of construction and reconstruction. In 2007, compelled by media images and stories of urban development she had seen in Vietnamese newspapers while living in Japan, Chung decided to resettle in Ho Chi Minh City. A burgeoning interest in cartography grew more acute as Chung intensified her research into local issues related to urban development, with focused attention on daily news items related to resettlement, demolition, and construction accidents. It was during this time that she began to draw what she called land holes, 
her artistic materials and methods becoming metaphors for the puncturing of the earth carried out by construction machinery. The decision to punch holes in several of her embroidered maps in a manner of precisely incised craters was inspired by a news feature about massive amounts of soil extracted from Kuchi district to be used for development in central Ho Chi Minh City. Chung's cartographic work would soon be developed to depict specific moments or diachronic layers of history narrated through the visible effects of spatial transformation. Sourcing archival documents, topographic maps, cartogram charts, projected urban plans, and infographics, Chung plays with such representations of space as captures of temporality, as documents of utopian and dystopian visions. Her cartographies are abstractions of abstractions, playing upon James Scott's descriptions of maps as instruments designed to summarize, abstract, and render legible geographical and human landscapes. Each map contains a complex system of coding, the legend for which the artist selectively provides. These legends are informed by what is missing, provided by the memories of these landscapes' inhabitants. Chung often takes on the role of ethnographer and historian to further document what cartographic records, infographics, and statistics cannot, the voices embedded in these topographies. As such, Chung's maps visibly capture the artist's efforts to both distill and express the density of history and experience that the two-dimensional cartographic surface circumscribes. As a long-term artistic praxis, her maps consistently employ aesthetic excess to subtly reveal veiled pathologies of social and environmental degradation due to master planning, the fraught legacies of imperial mapping projects, and the riven human landscapes of geopolitical violence and natural disasters. The urban condition of Vietnam at the end of the first decade of the new millennium would inspire further ethnographic research and even archeological methods as Chung repeatedly visit, visited districts slated for redevelopment, physically sorting through rubble to retrieve lost objects and fragments of former homes, items that would acquire the status of future relics in projects such as an archeology span archaeology project for future remembrance. The excavation of the past, of places and life worlds only present now through their archival remnants, would increasingly assume a more prominent role in her subsequent practice. In Chung's site-specific excavations in the raised district of Tutium, she restaged the fragments of her excavations and research in a negotiated form of artistic assemblage. Found objects such as windows and a concrete slab were retrieved and encased as future relics, orienting the viewer's aesthetic perception to the material affects of rubble and debris. Such work would soon trace a darker trajectory to a later project focused on the Syrian civil war. Like artists Tiffany Chung and Din Kulay, members of the 1.5 generation who had left Vietnam in their childhoods as refugees but returned as adults to assume permanent residence, Tuan Andrew Nguyen moved to Ho Chi Minh City in 2004, shortly after finishing his MFA at CalArts, 
and co-founded the artist-run space SanArt with Chung Lei and fellow the Propeller Group member Ha Tukfu Nam in 2007. A number of Nguyen's works in the first decade of the new millennium questioned the historical and dialectical notions of modernity that continue to resonate within everyday life in contemporary Vietnam. And the artist deployed such mediums as photo collage and video to set Vietnam and Ho Chi Minh City as the scene of everyday interactions in which the political, the practical, and the intimate are blurred domains. These include the 2003 film, Better Than Friends, a portrait of a family-run dog meat butchery in Ho Chi Minh City, and Into the Near Distant Future, a series of collaged postcards rescaling people and landscapes to disorient stock tourist landscapes and images of Vietnam. Other works would situate a distinctively transnational perspective on Vietnam's past and present, such as in the vocalizations of Vietnam in American rap music blared from the back of a bicycle speaker on the streets of Ho Chi Minh City, a kind of sonic urban intervention cognizant of its semantic futility in hip-hop history sampling hip-hop history, the Red Remix. Notable works from his collective, The Propeller Group, which includes Matt Lucero and Funam, elaborate on these themes with specific reference to the Vietnam War, including the AK-47 versus the M-16, exhibited at the 56th Venice Biennale. Throughout Nguyen's work, there is a fascination with the obsolete, the artifactual, and the bridging of distances of time and space that feature as aesthetic aspirations and everyday con contemplations. In addition, an emphasis on collaborative and collective projects underscores Nguyen's interest in blurring genres and categories of art, craft, and media production a desire that finds full expression in the Propeller Group's 2011 television commercial for communism. A series of paintings conceived by Nguyen in 2005 evokes a kind of intangible wistfulness and self-reflective, even ironic, longing that might be attributed to the kind of nostalgia for home, in this case, the United States. However, its methodical process of craft and composition also signals Nguyen's documentary interests at the time in the possibilities of public space for unobstructed artistic license and expression. Yet the contained form of the painted canvas conveys the limitation of such a hope and preserves such a vision, the palimpsestic nature of cities and the unexpected aesthetics of urban forms as self-conscious utopian image and object reference of art history, such as landscape, painting, the city, and realism. The paintings are, in a sense, realist abstractions, recontextualizing and mediating singular elements extracted from reality within the distilled pictorial space of the canvas resulting in a seemingly empirical vision grounded in everyday perception, yet conveying a sense of tension through its feeling of distance from lived experience. The 2005 to 2006 proposal for a Vietnamese landscape series comprises painterly compositions of visual signs referencing competing aesthetic and ideological programs 
currently interwoven into the landscape of major Vietnamese cities, attempting to capture the artist's subdued vision of a hybrid capitalist socialist cityscape. They are semi-fictional depictions rendered from a collective process of street photography, digital recomposition, and painterly reproduction, capturing a dialogue in which signage, graffiti, advertising, state propaganda, and tourist images both compete with and yet complement one another formally and semiotically, illustrated, illustrating Nguyen's main concern in exploring, quote, how signage, both propaganda and advertising, resemble each other in such remarkable and uncanny ways, end quote. The different forms of signage contend with each other as alternate signifiers of modernization and of the state ideologies and economic systems that have in turn attempted to animate and orient these forms of modernity, each sign evoked as a moment in time, a past vision of progress that lingers uneasily in the present alongside its others. In these montage-like compositions of Vietnamese streetscapes, the aestheticization or branding of both politics and commodities are equally intrinsic to an urban visual culture in which representational value comes to the fore and associated narratives or significations only retain superfluous meaning. Revisiting Martin Jay's conception of such images as all signifier, no signifieds, and the post-socialist works mentioned earlier in this talk, in reference to which Boris Groys also cited this semiotic quandary. In Nguyen's pictorial recombinations, formal juxtapositions and the painterly rendering of the mediums of media play less with cynical realism than with critical strategies attributed to capitalist realism, such as reproduction as representation and the artistic translation of commodity and advertising images as critique of materialism. My talk today has attempted to give further dimensions to artworks often first and foremost indexed through the interpretive lens of Vietnam and diasporic subjectivity, but this discussion only scratches the surface. The artists I've spoken about are Vietnamese American, but it is crucial to remember that the, Vietnam, the Vietnamese diaspora constitutes a multiplicity of experiences that differ historically and geographically. As Shelley Chan has argued, we must temporalize as well as spatialize diaspora. Major migrations within Vietnam, such as the North to South movement of some 300,000 Vietnamese in 1954 to 1955, following the Geneva Agreements in which Vietnam was partitioned at the 17th parallel to create two states, constitutes a diaspora as much as the subsequent exodus of some millions of Vietnamese to parts of the, sober, uh, parts of the former Soviet Eastern Bloc, Europe, Australia, and Asia. For these communities, Vietnamese diaspora means different things, and in contemporary art, artists like Berlin-based uh, Zan Va and Sung Tiu, and Paris-based Chun Chong Vu and filmmaker Chun An Hong have widened, the have widened the narratives and forms that Vietnam or diaspora might invoke. In the case of Zan Va, does diaspora provide a useful contextual framework? Nora Taylor's polemical affirmation of Zan Va's identity as a Vietnamese artist 
has more to do with Vietnamese history as a catalyst in his practice, and in this way, his biography does provide a significant means for understanding his work. But Taylor also notes the context of his lived experience in Berlin, drawing parallels between the history and memorial programs of a former divided Germany and those of his birth country. There is a kind of critical and curatorial processing of historical form in his practice that resonates with the works of the artists discussed today, whom we could situate among those who have sourced Vietnam as creative material, as well as those who have historicized it as a significant turning point in cultural discourse. Hence my title today, which queries what Vietnam has meant for multiple communities within its diasporas and beyond. And if we think about place and history rather than identity, what Vietnam means for a global art history. Thank you. You've um, used the term craft um, quite specifically in, in your paper. So I'm just wondering about how uh, this deployment of the term craft or urban craft, to quote Ifta Kardadi, um, plays in your conception of contemporary Vietnamese art. And also, I'm very curious about your own intellectual formations as to how you came about scoping uh, the study of contemporary Vietnamese art in this framework. Um, so as for craft, uh, which is often, I think we were just talking about this, which is often a very vexed term in uh, contemporary art uh, discourse, um, for me, uh, it's both a very practical way of discussing uh, several orientations in some of these artists' practices. Um, it indexes uh, tradition and heritage. So one way that diasporic artists um, sort of find creative inspiration, but uh, also a, a kind of means of cre reconnecting with their heritage, which undoubtedly is something that many of them are interested in, um, comes from referencing craft forms. And I guess, you know, craft we could think about as vernacular forms. Um, for example, the propeller group, they often um, hire uh, sort of craft specialists or craftsmen like wood carvers or uh, metal workers to execute certain forms. Um, Dinkule, this is a, something of interest for him as well. He often works with embroiderers, um, different kinds of craftspeople, and someone like Fifi Wan, as I mentioned before, and she's not the only one. Actually, there's a lot of Vietnamese American artists um, and other Vietnamese diasporic artists who have gone to Vietnam on scholarships and tried to study at the university, the Fine Arts University in Ho Chi Minh City um, in particular, to study lacquer painting. Um, it's often lacquer painting um, as a kind of, um, well, initially a kind of craft turned modern art medium in the colonial period. Um, so that's one way of thinking craft as a kind of method. Um, so the other way I'm talking about craft is also as a 
product of the informal economy. Um, and so this is where Iftikhar's work was very useful for me. And in terms of my intellectual trajectory, this is also where he comes in as one of my PhD supervisors. So undoubtedly, there's traces of his, his um, critical methods in my own work. Um, so craft in this instance, I think what Iftikhar is doing is also kind of reclaiming craft as a critical term. Um, and so it's, it's that, kind of, that kind of drive, that kind of methodology that also fueled my understanding of what Din was doing with the damaged gene. Um, so in a sense, reclaiming the agency of craft to produce critical commentary um, in that context. Um, Do the artists themselves describe their you know, production in the terms of craft? Uh, I think they do. I mean, they're very open about the fact that they outsource a lot of the labor to other people. Um, and sometimes it falls under the rubric of collaboration. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, I think perhaps they use the word craft. Perhaps they use the word artisan. Um, but yeah, it's something that they're pretty open about. They're not, you know, they're pretty honest about how the work is being made. Well, I just want to draw attention to some of the works that are already in the museum. If you know the gallery's offerings, we have a very interesting triangulation of um, mm -hmm. three artists. Um, Fifi Juan, as uh, Pamela has mentioned, is. Um, presented in the exhibition Radiant Material um, uh, in response to the Nyanjachi lacquer painting that's there. And of course, there's the rooftop commission by Zanvor, which is um, interesting to kind of think in terms of craft, but also not quite craft, because the craftily traditions are more obvious with uh, Fifi Huan, um, with lacquer. But with Yanvor, I think we're just a bit more stuck with how to kind of frame him within that kind of discourse. I don't know if you've got further thoughts about after, you know, seeing the work. Well, I mean, one of the first things that came to mind, and I sort of said this to Eugene right away, was that it's like a Noguchi garden. <laughs> it's like a Japanese garden, but with that sort of modernist flavor, you know. And perhaps if we want to go that way, if we want to contextualize it within Asia and modernism, there's a way that craft then creates a bridge, I think, um, as something that, you know, obviously it had very contentious, um, as a sort of invention of, you know, colonialism um, and the division of the so-called craftsman from the professional artist early on. Um, but there's a way that someone like Noguchi and perhaps a lot of artists in Japan, maybe Japan is a, a good sort of reference for this, in which that kind of boundary can be dissolved to some extent, that it doesn't need to participate in a kind of hierarchy of value. Um, so I don't know, maybe that's another way well, Zianzhou is also quite known as a bricoleur, so he does bring in a lot of different elements into yeah. his um, 
is how it works. My second question relates to um, perhaps the um, artists that you've selected to talk about today. Mm. And I'm kind of interested in, because they've mostly been presented as, um, or with their works connected to social political violence. And I'm also curious as to whether they have themselves contended with Vietnamese art history, you know, rather than the social political events that we're more familiar with. And perhaps for you to reflect on their own um, training in West Coast American art schools. Mm, mm -hmm. yeah. um, so the artists I chose to talk about you know, I focused on Vietnamese American artists because I felt like it was a more feasible topic to address and also to be able to delve into the work itself rather than to spend a lot of time dwelling on context. Um, so I decided to focus on that. Um, it's also practical in that these are artists that I researched for my book, and so that research is already there. Um, <clears throat> The first part was um, whether they've um, had in their own practices contended with Vietnamese art okay. history. Yeah. Yeah. Um, definitely. I think I can cite Din Kule as someone who's quite invested in Vietnamese art history, um, as a collector even. So he collects ceramics and, you know, he has an eye for, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, antiquities, you know. So there's certainly a kind of literacy there. Um, Twan Andrew Nguyen and the Propeller Group also, I guess, going back to craft, they're very interested in these um, kinds of uh, sort of breadth of vernacular practices um, in terms of Vietnamese um, artistry. Um, oh, there was someone else, but I can't put my finger on it. But yes, so there is a kind of art historical framework to what they're doing. Now, in terms of their formation at art schools on the West Coast, so Tiffany and um, Twan Andrew studied in California. Um, Din Kule did his MFA in New York. Um, June Winhasushiba went to Chicago. You know, so they all studied in major sites um, for contemporary art practice. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a particular flavor of conceptualism that we do see in a lot of these works. And I think with Twan Andrew in particular and his, uh, the Propeller Group colleague, uh, Matt Lucero, um, they went to school at, you know, they did their MFAs at CalArts, which in the 1980s was quite, kind of a rich center for sort of California conceptualism and many of its graduates would go on to teach at places like UC Santa Barbara, UC Irvine, where Twan Andrew did his undergrad. Um, and then, you know, 20 years later, CalArts becomes more of a site that produces people who go into industry fields. So people who are not just interested in becoming conceptual artists, but also go into advertising, design, et cetera. Um, and so there's an interesting, I don't know, there's kind of an interesting, something interesting that happens historically in terms of the impact of the Vietnam War on conceptual practice in the US and then Vietnamese American artists going to those schools that were breeding grounds for that conceptual practice that was 
responsive to the Vietnam War, especially in terms of performance. I mean, Chris Burden, for example. Um, and so there's an interesting kind of pathway of movement if we want to think about it that way. Um, yeah, sort of a, a dual sense of subject formation. I mean, these are also, you know, when we, when we talk about the 1.5 generation, uh, these are people who left Vietnam as refugees when they were children, right? So they still have memories um, of the journey and the experience, and they also are bearers to the experiences of their parents, who are sort of the first generation immigrants. Um, so they hold this sort of uh, kind of dual perspective, dialogical perspective on Vietnam. Yeah. So the other question was perhaps related, because um, you've mentioned quite a number of Southern Viet Q artists, and I'm very curious as to, is there any palpable difference between uh, a Northern and Southern artists, if that divide makes any sense at all? Uh, in terms of Viet Q, like refugees, who left the South? Because most, you know, when people use the term Viet Q, for a while that term was very problematic and had very negative connotations um, because the Viet Q were seen as the traitors, you know, those who chose to escape the new regime and the promise of a new kind of society. So they, Viet Q had this sort of taint of those who were disloyal to the nation um, and chose to live abroad. Nowadays, that, that connotation is, you know, more or less obsolete. Um, but in general, in terms of the U.S., Viet Q are Southerners. But there's also diasporas of Northern Vietnamese when North Vietnam was part of the Soviet Eastern Bloc. And those diasporic communities are you know, still in places like Berlin, for example, or countries from the Soviet Eastern Bloc. Um, so depending on where they are, it, it kind of indicates, you know, what part of the country they're from. So I... Have you noticed any dis differences in terms of aesthetic, um, artistic approaches? Um, hmm. Well, I'm trying to think. I mean, most of the artists that I've talked about and referenced are Southern. Yeah, even the f French artists who left Vietnam would have been, you know, likely from the South. But it's also the, this distinction between North and South is a blurry one, too. So you have, for example, a 1954 generation that I mentioned, you know, where there's, there was a moratorium um, that allowed people from the North to leave what was going to be a communist state and emigrate to the South. And that's called the 1954 generation, born in the North. Um, so they speak with the Northern accent, but then it's sort of modified, mediated by the Southern accent. Um, so are they Northerners or are they Southerners? You know, born in Hanoi, but then, you know, from their childhood on lived in the South. So sometimes it's not so easy to characterize. So some of the older artists, like um, Chun Chong Vu, for example, um, I, I'm trying to remember, I'm not sure, but he might be part of that generation. So I don't know if we would call him, I, I don't know if it's useful also to distinguish his practice as being more Northern or Southern. Yeah. Thank you, Pamela. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to open to the floor. Um, there is a microphone coming around, so, and the session's being recorded, so I would kindly ask that you speak into the microphone.
Thank you. Okay. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Pamela, for the fascinating talk, and thanks for the uh, interesting discussion. Um, so I have a question about like how the local um, artists, those who collaborated with the um, diasporic artists, how they see this homecoming. Mm. You know, like the, the artists or artisans who they outsource the craft to, like, do they, does that raise any question about, since you mentioned informal economy, right? Does that raise any question about um, authenticity or labor economy or maybe exploitation or opportunity? Thank you. I don't know how much I can speak to the perspectives of the, the people who are being hired to execute the works, because I haven't interviewed them and I haven't spoken with them. Um, but I think for many of these artists, there's kind of a clear-cut definition between what is considered collaboration, and collaboration is a very sticky and messy term. But for them, they, there's a kind of clear-cut uh, division between collaboration, what's acceptable as collaboration, and then what is clearly outsourcing. Um, or they try to have it be a clear-cut definition. So collaboration is where the people who help execute the work get credit. So like Twin Andrew Nguyen in <sighs> collaboration with Wowie and Link Sao and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so if they are recognized as co-authors, they don't get paid, okay? If it's um, outsourcing, they get paid to do the work, and then they don't get recognition as co-authors. Um, so as for whether the latter arrangement is considered a form of exploitation, my instinct would be no. My sense would be no, I, I think because of what I know of these artists and their role in the community and you know, the sort of respect that they have from local artists. I don't think that they've ever been critiqued for exploiting craftsmen or artisans. You know, they're hired to do a job, they're compensated, et cetera. Um, yeah, but the question of collaboration is not always clear. I mean, this is the sense that I've gotten from conversations, is if you're a collaborator, you're listed as a co-author. You don't get paid. Um, but that's often quite messy. Hi. Um, first off, thank you, Pamela, for your, um, for your presentations. Um, I actually had the privilege, I used to work for Sun Art, so I used to have the privilege of seeing all of these wonderful works and have conversation with the artists that you mentioned in the presentation. Uh, so I kind of have a, a little bit of a double question. Um, so the first one would be, um, so as I see, as I have conversation with these artists and I look at the work, there's always a sense of this tug of war between what is considered traditional, what is considered in more like a pop culture image, more popular image of what Vietnam is, you know, with the Vietnam War, with um, Agent Orange, and it's very historicized images. And then they reimagine it, then kind of blending it into something that they see, these artists see when they come into the country, years after they've left it. Um, so I'm kind of wondering, like, 
so this kind of this kind of is this like a trend for for what for um, for a lot of diasporic artists to do? Is that, or is it because they're limited in their point of references in re, in in relation to Vietnamese history and Vietnamese art history? I'm just wondering from your conversation and your research with the artists, what is their opinion and what do you think? Um, and the second questions, uh, you mentioned that we should. There's a quote that I really. I'm really interested in in what you said. We should temporalize and spatialize diaspora. So, um, as someone who returned from the United States, studying in university there, I find there's a growing group of a new generation diaspora for those who left specifically for educational purpose, but then come back. Some of them are also artists, um, so they kind of have this different out outlook in what considered Vietnam, what's considered home, what's considered history for, for us. Um, so I think it's, uh, in addition, of course it diversifies the discussion about diaspora, but also complicates it. It gives it a lot more layers. So I don't know, um, in your research, and it brings into the question of who is a diaspora, who belongs to the diaspora, because artists who move from north to south, or from central to south or south to north, are they considered diaspora? So yeah, I'm just curious in your definition of diaspora, and have you talked to have you talked to artists who are not um, political refugees, political belong to the political diasporic umbrella, and do you have an, is that a future direction for your research? Maybe. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for you know your very astute reflections and your questions, which I'll try to remember. <laughs> to answer. Um, so the first question was about historical references and the seeming preference to go back to the Vietnam War for a number of these artists. Um, I think that yes, the Vietnam War does come up as the primary historical reference for many of these Vietnamese American artists because it's personal and that is what constituted their diasporic experience. Um, but if you look at the works of Sung Tiu um, and, oh gosh, I just blanked out. Um, okay, Zan Va, for example. Um, the historical references are very broad. So Zan Va did this one piece where he had his father rewrite a letter, um, uh, what was it, by a, a Portuguese missionary, I'm trying to remember. Um, so that's, that's like 16th century history. Um, that's about, you know, uh, missionary activities and the persecution of, you know, Christian missionaries in what we might consider to be imperial Vietnam. Um, but I almost, for me, that work, that the, for me, that work is foremost about process and issues of, I don't know, something more complex than a kind of historical narrative. It's almost very, you know, sort of fits into a kind of conceptual impetus and it seems to be more about the act of writing and reproduction and copying. And the historical references enlivens it and gives it meaning, but it's, for me it doesn't seem to be primarily about that. Um, and then Sung Diu, a very young artist, um, very recent example of, um, you know, kind of a new generation of Vietnamese diasporic artists is referencing a different kind of migration. Um, 
you know, she specifically, you know, left Vietnam um, as a refugee, but settled in Germany. And then her works don't pinpoint the Vietnam War, but they sort of reference the broader experience of migration. So there's almost a universal kind of dimension to what she's doing. So yeah, I think that in, from what I've seen, yes, the Vietnam War does come up as a more specific point of reference and for some obsession. Uh, for some of these artists, like Din Kule has professed that he has long had a kind of obsession with the war, so they're very honest about that. Um, I think, I hope that addresses the first question. Um, and the second question, which is much more ambitious, you know, how do we de define diaspora? Um, so there's a lot of scholarship on diaspora studies and what constitutes diaspora, how do we define diaspora. Um, in the quote that I used was from Shelley Chan, who published an article in the Journal of Asian Studies about temporalizing diaspora. And I think that's probably where my own use of the term comes in, because for me, there's a difference between diaspora and migration, right? So I, for example, would be an example, I would be an example of a migrant, you know, as an American who then uh, has moved to London for work. Um, that doesn't make me diasporic. I don't consider myself diasporic. It's an instance of migration. Um, so for me, when I use the term, I use it specifically to reference a kind of historical collective movement so it has to be historicized. You know, it's not just about movement across borders, um, but it's about a kind of collective movement that takes place at a certain historical period or is incited by a very, you know, a major historical development. So that's the way I use it. Um, but I think there's a lot of scholarship and discourse that has complicated it even further. But for me, that's probably the most straightforward way to distinguish diaspora from migration. Although, of course, there's overlap. Well, thank you for, the, um, um, for your presentation. Uh, my question is, um, it's gonna focus, uh, kind of focus on the, the part about uh, urban development, the part that uh, a lot of the artists also focus on as part of their inspirations. Uh, I'm just wondering, um, what do you think their stance on progress is, given their inspiration being in, you know, sort of making the, the old symbols becoming relics and becoming, a, you know, sort of a symbol of the past and trying to uh, fossilize it in, in, in the way that uh, they did? Uh, because I worked with uh, a few cohorts of researchers coming to Vietnam to, uh, you know, to kind of experiment or just... Uh, experience um, the urban development um, in Vietnam, and they seem to have a very static view of, uh, you know, the old, uh, undeveloped Vietnam being, you know, something to preserve, and basically the the new sort of development of Vietnam being something is, that can be villainized. So, is it? Do you see this trend through your uh, sort of? conversation with them that, you know, these uh, Vietnamese American artists having the same views uh, as well, uh, you know, about Vietnamese urban development in general. Um, so whether Vietnamese American artists see urban development as a form of progress or do they also kind of fixate on the past as a kind of... Um, yeah. 
unfortunately, the term that comes to mind is sort of a historical fetish. Or yeah, I mean, it can be phrased that way, yes. But sometimes people view it as an erasure of, you know, like the, the past yeah. and things like that. I don't think that they do it in the same way that I've seen in Cambodia. And I, I shouldn't have used the term historical fetish, but perhaps just heritage, a kind of fixation with heritage embodied in architecture and you know, the urban plan. Um, I don't know if I see the artists that I spoke about as viewing it in quite the same way. Like they wouldn't necessarily go out of their way to be activists. Um, but in a sense, it's a kind of fascination. It's a kind of, I don't know, it's kind of fascination with the visuality and, um, you know, the visuality of urban relics um, and urban form. And when, you know, when I talk about urban form, it's, it's also like um, the signage too, um, not just architecture. But I feel like, yeah, I don't know if the Vietnamese artists, the Vietnamese American artists that I've studied really operate in the same kind of project as you know, some of these researchers who are really thinking about preserving heritage or you know, solutions, um, you know, creative solutions um, to this problem. So in a way, their, their work doesn't really impose any judgment on it's, development. I don't know if it's, yeah, I don't know if it's judging it. I mean, one could draw that conclusion about Tiffany Chung's work, but they're not, the work is not actually proposing to solve a problem or, you know, create a practical solution. The work it remains within the realm of art, you know, um, and it doesn't seek to enter that, that arena of sort of activism and, you know, cultural life. Yeah. Do you think they should? I don't think that that's their responsibility. I mean, they can certainly, there's a lot that the artwork can do in terms of making people ask questions or making people look at their surroundings in different ways. But if someone wants to take on that responsibility to address those problems, then they need to go into urban planning, I think. I mean, just practically speaking, I don't feel like we have to always place that burden on the artists. You've been listening to the Padang Sessions from National Gallery Singapore. Follow us for updates and new episodes every month. And to learn more about our programs at the gallery, visit nationalgallery.sg. Our podcast team is Erica Lai, Kalisha Chiakasim, and Tamaris Goh. And the music you heard is composed by Javon Chandra. I'm Joyce Chung. Thanks for listening. <laughs>